Thank you. And I want to uh, thank you, Christian and Becky, for uh, helping us worship. That was really, I felt it. It was really beautiful and, and uh, nice, to, nice to have you lead us in that way. And thanks to Matt and Debbie, the pastors here, for giving me an opportunity to share uh, my experience of salvation and recovery through uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And I really am um, grateful for for their leadership and the way they welcome so many of us here who uh, may not have felt especially loved by our God from time to time. And this is a place where we can know that love and experience it. So I commend all of you for your faith, uh, friends old and new who are here, and uh, trust that God will be with us as uh, I share my experience um, as an alcoholic in recovery, uh, but also as a Christian someone who has found that love that we just sang about to be really very real. And, um, in, and as a way to continue to honor our God, I would like to begin with prayer. And I pray, dear God, as we uh, continue in this season of Christmas, I thank you for making yourself known through angels and dreams and prophets and stars and through the humble people like Mary and Joseph and those shepherds, through the disciples who, who were drawn to you and who found new life and hope in you. I thank you for how obvious you've made your love for us, how obvious you've made your love known to us through Jesus Christ who, who has loved us so gracefully so thoroughly, so beautifully, loved us all the way to the cross. And yet, uh, through his death, and you're raising him, Lord, we know that uh, your love remains triumphant. And in that hope, in that power, we can live lives like we do today, lives made new and uh, beautiful. So I'm here Lord, to honor you and to thank you for this opportunity to share the way you've loved me into new life. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Matt's going to help me with the slides, and uh, I'll just cue you, Matt. Um, but I want to begin with a story. Uh, it begins in year 2001. Uh, I've been a pastor, of a, a lead pastor of a church for about eight years, uh, also, I was also drinking about three or four days a week at that point. My mother um, was in her eighth year of cancer. She got oral cancer in 1993 when I started at this church and had survived by this time 12 surgeries for oral cancer. And I was with her uh, as we went to meet with the oncologist again, and the news was not good. The cancer was back and it moved to her lungs. And we were riding the elevator down from that visit. And she said to me, Brad, where do you go when what's killing you lives inside of you? And that, those words stuck with me about, uh, this was 2001. It was about uh, September when she told me that, that line. And by uh, December, she was in hospice at a facility not far from here. And um, 
I went to, uh, I have three brothers, and it was my turn to, uh, to be with her, to sit with her on that. It was December 21st, the shortest day of the year, and, and I was alone in the room with her playing Christmas music and, and counting her breaths as she breathed, and, and uh, as it turned out, my, my stay shift was done, and as it was at that time, my family at the time was back up at the church I served, and uh, I knew I had a bottle waiting for me in the car. And so I left the hospice facility and began to drink on my way to my older brother's restaurant and bar. And I got to the, to the restaurant. They said, Brad, your mother's uh, life is ending. You've got to get back there. And so I went back to the hospice facility. And two of my brothers and my father and my brother's girlfriend were there with my mother. And, and uh, I was able to be there when she died. And I remember I had a buzz going the day my mom died. And I remember I took out the book of worship that I used as a pastor and I, I said the prayer over her body. And I closed the book and my brothers and my father hugged and I went to look for my bottle. Yeah. So that was 2001. I want to back it up though as a... As a boy growing up, my father was alcoholic, and in my home, uh, going to church wasn't, I had three brothers, we were pretty rowdy, no sisters, and, and going to church was not something we did on Sundays or any time of the year, and, and uh, I remember as a boy, though, when I got to be about 12 years old, um, there was this loneliness and longing inside of me. Uh, my dad's drinking was, uh, was troublesome, as you can imagine. Um, he, I remember him pouring whiskey in his morning coffee. Uh, I remember him uh, pulling a bottle out from underneath the couch in our den and uh, taking a pull from it and then doing this. You know? And the three rules in an alcoholic family home are don't talk, don't feel, and don't trust. In that one gesture, he was saying, don't do any of those things. Keep the secret. And I learned not to trust, not to talk, and not to feel. Because if I did those things, that would challenge my father's alcoholism, and he'd have to have a primary relationship with me rather than his booze. Little did I know that as my dad's alcoholism took him away from the four of us kids and my mom, my alcoholism would do the same to my four kids and my first wife. But it was during this time around age 12 that I began to, I watched these people in our neighborhood go off to church on Sunday morning. The whole family's going in their car, and I thought, there's something beautiful about that. There's something decent. And I, and I felt in seeing that a longing to have what they had. It's that inner knowing, I don't know if you've ever felt that, something missing. And so I happened to have a children's Bible in the house, and I went looking for it. And in my home, I started reading the Bible in secret, you know. Most people hide their booze. I held the Bible in my home. And in our, it's funny because like the vitamins in our home were in the, above the fridge and the booze was on ground level. That's just the way it was in my home. So, but anyways, I began to know this Jesus and, and I began to invite him into my heart. And I'll tell you, I felt a peace and a love and a calm and uh, it was during that time that I met a friend in the audience who, who was also a Christian, and uh, we began to share our faith with each other. 
and to pray and, and to learn scripture. We would memorize scripture together. We began, uh, some of you know, Young Life. We were participating in that. And I found this faith in Jesus Christ that was kind of a counterbalance to what was going on in my home. I could go to my high school friends and I could share what was on my heart, how bad it was at home, and they'd say, Brad, I'll pray for you. I know that's tough. Don't forget that the love of Jesus is with you. And I, I got some consolation that way. But as it was, I also, I, I like drinking. I found booze at age 30, 13 myself. I go, oh, that's what dad likes. And so I began to drink and to worship and go to Bible study and drink. I love both of them, honestly. I don't know if any of you are there. But I like the good buzz, and I sure like this alcohol stuff. So as it turns out, uh, I was 15. I was about two weeks away from my 16th birthday. And uh, my friend and I had gone to a Bible study, but we had a case of beer waiting at home for us. And and there was a party at his house, and I got good and drunk, and a friend of ours needed a ride home. And I had my permit. So my friend threw the keys to me and I got, I got a DUI at age 15. Yeah, pulled over for slowing. Ooh, you know. And uh, I remember being in the back of the police car thanking God that I got caught because the struggle was so real. Uh, you know that struggle about wanting to do right but not being able to? Man, is that next slide available? It's, uh, yeah, there it is. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You know? And as we head into the New Year's, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions, you know, along those last. It's very hard to do that. But this really characterizes Not the change in behavior, but the inner struggle that makes the change in behavior difficult. And that was certainly my experience as an alcoholic who loved Jesus, who loved God, who loved serving him. And I had all these profound experiences in in the Christian life. But there was this nagging thing about alcoholism that, that really started to get at me. But I did get sober. I was sober for a time and, uh, and went on to, uh, to continue my search as a Christian to serve the God I loved and who loved me. And I, I uh, would kind of do these things where I'd, I'd serve a church and then I'd, I'd do labor and then I'd go back to college and serve a church, do labor, kind of this thing, this experience. And finally ended up at about age 29, deciding after finishing a degree Uh, I decided at the time to enter seminary, except a call to the ministry. I was married at the time. I had two children, and uh, we went off to uh, divinity school. And yet, at that time, I had resumed drinking. And it was this strange phenomenon, because I was so zealous for 
learning because I knew I needed to get equipped for ministry. But any opportunity I had to drink, I was like, you know, that, that bad dog that just waits for the screen door to open and off I'd go. And it was just, it was terrible because uh, I had to maintain a certain grade point average to maintain my academic scholarship and I was working on ordination orders and raising the kids. We had a third while I was there. And uh, I also broke my back and got the shingles. And I say that only to say I pushed through that, the pain. And that wasn't heroic. It was, it was part of the pathology, remember? Don't talk, don't feel, don't trust, right? So I pushed through the back, broken back. It would be eight years till I got it fixed. Yeah, that's, that's what denying and ignoring the truth about what I was experiencing, the level to which that would go. But we got through seminary and I was appointed to a church and that's when, you know, when I got to that church, I was, um, we had a fourth child in 94 and uh, for eight, eight plus years, I, I served and, and loved those people but, but my alcoholism was was amping up and that brought me to that point where I told you that um, where my mother uh, died and I drank uh, in response to it. If you know anything about alcoholism, it's a progressive uh, disorder and it, it, it's, it's a strange experience to not want to drink but to drink. And then the consequences from drinking were so terrible and yet I drink to get away from the consequences of drinking. They call that the impaired controlled cycle, which is what I was in. Because in 2002, after uh, my mother had died, I, uh, I got another DUI and uh, I went off the rails. I left my wife and my kids, I left the church, and I went to drinking full time. So from 2002 to 2004, um, I, I got two DUIs. I was either in jail, in the psych ward, in treatment, or drunk. I had eight, over eight jobs in those two years. I couldn't hold it together. It was just this awful experience. I hooked up with a woman who was not my wife, and that was just uh, crazy on crazy, you know? I ended up at uh, this point where um, I didn't know what to do. My life was so awful, and I couldn't stop drinking. So I put my stuff in storage. I told this woman she deserved better, and I left. And I didn't have a license because of the DUI, and I didn't know where to go. I had my bottle with me, and that was it. And I went to a bridge over the freeway to wait for a big semi so that if the fall didn't kill me, the truck would. And instead, I decided to call the cops on myself. <laughs> I called the cops. I said, I'm, I'm drunk. I don't know what to do. I'm scared. I don't want to live, but I don't want to die. They said, Brad, we'll bring you back to the, the hospital. So my fourth day in the psych ward, I'm in there, right? And there's this addiction specialist looks at me. He goes, he's got a stack of files from my times there. And he goes, Brad. You're rowing like crazy, but you only got one oar in the water. That's why you keep cycling back in here. You're treating your depression, but you're not treating your alcoholism. Take care of your alcoholism. See what happens. So I went to treatment. And uh, 
and I took his advice. And uh, I, I, it was so bizarre. I threw an unopened bottle of vodka in the dumpster and went to treatment. How does that happen? And I, uh, I went into treatment, and my twin brother, who's here, who will be celebrating 15 years of sobriety tomorrow, uh, was waiting for me when I got out of treatment. And uh, because I was separated from my family and the church and everything, he provided a place for me to come and get sober. And uh, I began to engage in that process we call 12-step recovery and the community that's available to us in this process of reclaiming our life from addiction and our family's life and all those relationships. And it was hard work because I didn't have a license. My wife at the time, God bless her, to protect herself from my alcoholism, she and the kids, she took all the money we had and put it in a different account. So I had no money, I had no license, I had no home. I had like three contacts on my flip phone. Tells you what time it was, but you know what I mean? That's the way it is. We, we drink ourselves in this lonely hole, but, but I, I didn't want to die. But I didn't know how to live. But I didn't want to die. See, that, that passage that Matt shared. Who will save us, it says. The next, the next one is, um, the next slide says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Or as my mother put it, where do you go when what's killing you lives inside of you? Right? Where do we go when that happens? And the answer is, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's my hope. I can't get better on my own. I live that experience daily, but, but Jesus Christ says, I'm the one that will give you life. I solve that dilemma. You love me as I love you, and you will see the truth of how powerful my love is. I, I will show you a way out, and he did. And I'll tell you, what a way out it's been. I mean, it was a slow climb, as you can imagine, riding my bike. I'd have to take the Greyhound bus up to see my kids, scrape together some money to buy them lunch, and, and every time I got close to the city where my kids were, my heart would come up to my throat because I thought, who am I going to run into from my church? And what are they going to say? But my kids were there. And there was something inside of me that said, if you don't go see your kids, then alcoholism wins, right? Go see your kids. Let them know they're loved. And trust that God will work through that. And uh, as you can imagine, the guilt and shame from what I had done to my family and the church, I, I didn't, God and I weren't exactly on speaking terms, but, but you know what? We're told that in, in Christmas time, who makes the first move? God comes to us. God comes to us. And God came to me and said, Brad, let me, let me just, I'll love you till you can love yourself. Let me show you again, you know, how graceful and how loving and how merciful I am. I couldn't, I couldn't even accept his love, but that didn't matter because he loved me. You see how that works? God is just tireless at loving us, and he did that for me. And so I got sober, and through the course of my recovery, you know, making amends to my family and the, the church, and my, uh, it was just a, a long, slow climb until I met Anne, my wife. You guys know Anne, and uh, what a gift. Anne is, yeah, she's a sweetheart, and 
And Anne introduced me to her family, family of faith. And um, part of me didn't want to fall in love with her because I didn't have a whole lot to offer, you know. But uh, Anne is a really loving person, and she, uh, she wouldn't have any of that. So I'm really grateful to her. As a matter of fact, um, we started dating, and it was, uh, went pretty quickly after that. But it uh, came up to Valentine's Day. And uh, I said, Ann, I got an idea for our, you know, for Valentine's. She goes, no, I've got an idea. Ann's a flight attendant. She took me to Paris for <laughs> Valentine's Day. And I had been praying about our relationship. And so we're, it's Valentine's Day. We're in Paris. And we're on, uh, we have dinner. And Ann's usually really lighthearted and playful and fun and all smiles. And she's a little pensive and all this. And she goes, uh, she brings me over to this bridge, Point Alexander Bridge and the the Eiffel Tower's in the background. It's night. It's beautiful. And, and uh, she goes, Brad, I want to tell you something. Back in October, I was here praying about us. And this homeless woman approached me. And she goes, here, this is for you. And it was a man's wedding band. And she goes, oh, no, no, no. And she goes, no, no, I want you to have this. And Ann, I think, bought her a pork chop or something. But Ann goes, Ann says, she opens up this box and she goes, will you marry me? And I mean, I hug her and I say, yes. And I'm looking up at the night sky saying, thank you, God. Yes, yes, yes. And so that uh, has begun a partnership in the faith. And uh, many, many blessings have come to that. And uh, the beautiful thing about recovery is you think everything's over. The joke Ann and I had was, you know, like, She's been married before I have. We thought it'd be like this old game show. If you were a runner-up, you'd get like six months' supply of turtle wax. You know, so we were always <laughs> talking about turtle wax. You know, or we said uh, we, gotta, we, we were looking at condos, and we said we need more closet space for our skeletons and that kind of stuff, you know. So, <laughs> so we learned to love each other as is, and, and that's the way God loves us. And this new love that, where God says, you know, I'll take... Uh, let me show you what I can do. And, and God has restored my relationship with my children. And with Anne is friends with my ex-wife. I'm friends with her ex-husband. We pray for them, not because we're good people, but because we're not. And we know that that love that's been shown to us is for all of us. That it's, you know, that there's something about healing those relationships that heals us this mysterious, big, wonderful love that we, we learn about in the cross is, is very real. And um, it was, uh, I, I got to journey through Anne's father's death as well. He died at the same hospice place as my mother uh, about 13 years later. And uh, about a year after that, we were back at that hospice place to honor those who had died in the last year, and it was around Christmas time, and I was in the backyard of that place where I drove my mother, knowing that this was her last car ride, and, and about 120 of us were gathered who had come to, to honor those we had lost in the last year. And we were standing in the backyard in this Christmas tree that was 
I remember it was a lot smaller when I brought my mom there. It was now 16 feet high. And the organizer of this gathering said, I'm going to hand out uh, Christmas carols. We're going to sing Christmas carols. I'm going to turn the lights on on this tree and we're going we're to sing together. And sure enough, turned on the light and that tree uh, just came to life. And we began to sing Christmas carols. And there were families whose loved ones were dying in the, the second floor peering out of a picture window as we sang, sang these hymns of hope and promise in the midst of their dying. And I thought, this is, this is how we live recovery. This is how we live as Christians. Jesus, Paul says we're dying, yet we're living because of who Christ is. His life lives in us. And so those Christmas carols on that night became protest songs. And we sang some tonight too, didn't we? Because we believe that this love that God has brought to us through Jesus Christ redeems and reclaims us and calls us forward to love similarly in the midst of the darkness. Because there's a light there, isn't there? And the, the darkness has not overcome it. And so I attempt to live that way. I try to help other alcoholics. I went on to get a Master of Addiction Counseling. I served as a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. I worked a bit for Teen Challenge as a chaplain. Then I got hired by Hazelden to do spiritual care for 200 and some patients. And I remember sitting with a patient one day. He was a Christian, so I could talk about our faith. And he, like me, was feeling so badly about where alcoholism had taken him. And he mentioned a real low point. And I said to him, did it ever occur to you that God was loving you there? When you were at your worst, God is at his best. And the, like the scripture says, you see, just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates or proves his love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through his life, I believe it is. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. And I said to him, I go, I paraphrase that. And you know what he did? He turned his head and he looked out the window. I could see the, the tears well up in his eyes. And he goes, the whole effing time? <laughs> yep. <laughs> he loved you the whole effing time. And uh, we'd go on with the counseling session. Every now and then he'd just cut me off and he goes, the whole effing time? <laughs> That's the love of God. I mean, it's just so amazing when we can't love ourselves. He comes in to love us. That's the story of God's tremendous redeeming, saving love through his son, Jesus Christ. And I am here to celebrate that with you tonight. 
And to tell you, as you, you know, it's true, isn't it? So thanks be to God. Well, <clears throat> Brad, you had me in tears, and so thank you. Thank you for your vulnerability and your humility and your faith and for sharing with all of us that God redeems us, that he meets us wherever we're at, and that he loves us, so thank you. Part of what I love most about what you said is that you use the phrase, for the struggle is real. And that is as true for Brad as it is for every one of us in this room. For the struggle is real. We are broken people with broken stories living in a broken world. And the struggle is real. And the question, who will rescue us, is answered by that of Jesus. And that's why we gather here on Sunday nights. And that's who we remember and who we celebrate when we break bread together on Sunday evenings. Because it's Jesus. It's Jesus who pursues us and loves us and reminds us that we are his. We are his beloved and we belong. So when we gather together, we break bread and we dip it into a cup and we invite you into that as the music is playing and we're worshiping together. You can come forward as you like and there's gluten-free elements right here in the front, regular bread and juice on the sides and you can take that bread and dip it into the cup and when you do that, you can remember that you're not alone, that we struggle together. And you're not alone and you are loved. Because what we remember is that love wins. God redeems and love wins. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, he sat at a table and he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. This is my blood shed for you. When you drink from this cup, remember me, the new covenant. A covenant for everybody. And so that's what we do. We take the bread and we drink from the cup and we remember. We remember love because that's what wins. So please stand as together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. <clears throat>